0: Okay, so, uh, we're going to get started now. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. And for those who are watching online, my name is Jeff Singer. I'm a general surgeon and a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Syringe services programs, commonly referred to as needle exchange programs, are a proven means of reducing the spread of HIV and hepatitis among intravenous drug users. In recent years, needle exchange programs have been distributing free kits of the opioid overdose antidote naloxone, adding the reduction of overdose deaths to the list of harms that needle exchange programs reduce. Many also offer referrals for addiction therapy and counseling, yet another benefit. Needle exchange programs have been employed here in the United States since the 1980s and in Europe since the 1970s. They are endorsed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, the American Public Health Association, the American Medical Association, and of course, uh, the Surgeon General of the United States. Nevertheless, needle exchange programs are legally permitted to operate in only 30 states and the District of Columbia. Drug paraphernalia laws make them illegal elsewhere. Critics of needle exchange programs claim that they enable or endorse illicit drug use, and not in my backyard attitudes fuel opposition in local communities. Experts will discuss the efficacy and role of this harm reduction strategy, as the political challenges to its widespread, uh, and, and as, as well as the political challenges to its widespread adoption. It is a great privilege to have with us today three people with considerable experience and expertise on this issue who will share their knowledge and viewpoints. Vice Admiral Jerome Adams, MD, MPH, Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Ricky Bluthenthal, Professor of Preventive Medicine and Associate Dean for Social Justice at the University of California, Southern California Keck School of Medicine, and Arizona State Representative Tony Rivero, Republican from District 21, who has been seeking reform of Arizona's paraphernalia laws in order to decriminalize its active needle exchange programs and encourage uh, new ones to develop. To start things off, it is my great honor to introduce the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Jerome Adams. Dr. Jerome Adams is the 20th Surgeon General of the United States. In response to the opioid epidemic, Dr. Adams issued the first Surgeon General's advisory in 13 years, urging more Americans to carry naloxone, an FDA-approved medication that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. Dr. Adams received bachelor's degrees in both biochemistry and psychology from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, a Master of Public Health from the University of California, Berkeley, and a medical degree from Indiana University School of Medicine. He has been a leader in numerous professional organizations including the American Medical Association, the Indiana State Medical Association, the Indiana Society of Anesthesiologists. And I just learned uh, this morning that he also continues to practice anesthesia at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He's uh, also the former uh, uh, Health Commissioner of Indiana, where he led the state's responses to Ebola, Zika, and the largest ever HIV outbreak in the United States related to IV drug use. With that, let me introduce to you the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Jerome Adams. Well, good afternoon, everyone.
1: Oh, you all can do better than that. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, Dr. Singer, for that kind introduction. He's a surgeon. I'm an anesthesiologist. We live on... on different sides of the curtain, but uh, we, we definitely can't get our job done alone. We, we definitely always work together, and I think that's what today is all about. So I'm thrilled, Dr. Singer, to be here to discuss the important role of syringe services programs, and I uh, very much want to thank Cato for hosting this uh, great conversation. Today in America, over 2 million people struggle with an opioid use disorder. And I've heard countless stories of individuals who were initially introduced to opioids via their own prescription or diverted from someone else's prescription. We've been somewhat successful, somewhat I say, in limiting opioid prescriptions. Nationally, they're down 22%, uh, though we still prescribe over 90% of the world's opioids to less than 5% of the world's population. But the fact is, our failure to address the root causes of addiction means that many people have transitioned from prescription opioids to heroin, and to fentanyl. Consequently, we've seen a a significant increase in in, intravenous drug use and uh, related morbidity and mortality, including an explosion of infectious diseases linked to injection drug use. This new and unfortunate reality has impacted families, not only across the country, but uh, likely right here in this very audience. As some of you know, my own baby brother, Philip, is currently serving a 10 year prison sentence for crimes he committed to support his addiction. Philip suffered from untreated anxiety and depression, and he turned to drugs to self medicate. And uh, I share his story and my family's struggle to show that Americans all across the spectrum suffer from addiction. And that addiction can happen to anyone, even the brother of the United States Surgeon General. We like to think that addiction happens to people who come from bad families. Well, my family managed to raise a Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, I'd like to think that there are a lot of families out there who'd be proud to, to say that about their child. My family also raised a son who is now about an hour away from here right now in prison. And... I share my story because I hope to give others the courage to share their stories so that together we can fight stigma. I truly believe that stigma is one of our biggest killers, and unless our loved ones and their families and friends feel comfortable seeking help, we'll never reach those who need it the most. Often people who misuse drugs are in a state of poor mental and physical health, and they're hesitant to seek treatment due to the stigma of addiction. I didn't know that my brother was using injection drugs until he was actually incarcerated. Uh, But there's a proven biological component to addiction. It is not uh, a matter of simply having the willpower to say no. I'll put it another way. There is no one in America who woke up this morning and said, today I'm going to become addicted to drugs. Opioid addiction can occur very quickly, often after just a few uses. Individuals who stop can experience extremely uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. So it's important for us to understand today in the context of the conversation we're having that instead of using to get high, most chronic IV drug users are seeking to alleviate the sickness that comes with extreme withdrawal. Opioid addiction can be extremely difficult to defeat, again, as uh, I can attest to by witnessing my own brother's uh, challenges but the fact is, recovery is possible with the right support and resources. And at its core, that's what our discussion today is all about, recognizing that addiction is a disease, that it can afflict and affect any person, any family, any community, and that, as with other diseases, we have evidence-based treatments that can help people recover. But due to stigma, many of our most effective treatments are being underutilized. And uh, it's interesting. We were having a conversation before I came in about uh, marijuana use in this country. Uh, 33 states in the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana use. That means that it's easier to get a joint in most parts of the United States than what it is to get a clean syringe if you're someone with, uh, with a substance use disorder. Uh, I want to talk about syringe service programs because they're one of those underutilized treatments. Syringe service programs are scientifically proven to improve and to save lives, whether it's in urban Washington, D.C. or rural Scott County, Indiana. Opioid addiction is so powerful, people who use drugs <clears throat> will often inject wherever they can and with whatever needles they can. Uh, as part of my experience in Scott County, we actually sat down with many people who, uh, who inject drugs. And I've spoken to... Uh, IV drug injectors who report using the same needle over and over again until it literally breaks off in their vein. Think about that. Think about a needle breaking off in your arm while you're injecting. By facilitating sterile syringe access and disposal, SSPs, which is how I'll abbreviate syringe service programs, not only reduce costly and potentially deadly medical complications such as skin abscesses and endocarditis, but importantly, They connect people who inject drugs with mental health and addiction treatment services, such as medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, so they can break a vicious cycle. And uh, you'll hear different terminologies, different words used today. We were having a discussion, Dr. Singer and I, before we came back, about uh, whether we should call them needle exchanges or whether we should call them syringe service programs. I will tell you that I utilize the term syringe service programs because, uh, from my standpoint, it's providing so much more than the exchange of needles. Uh, We have a lot of science behind the fact that that needle exchange uh, component is important for preventing the spread of infectious diseases, but there's an array of services that are provided. Participants of syringe service programs, comprehensive syringe service programs, are five times more likely to enter drug treatment and three and a half times more likely to cease injecting compared to those who don't use syringe service programs. In decades of research, And this is important to hear. Decades of research show that syringe service programs do not increase crime or drug consumption and are, in fact, cost-saving. Cost for an HIV case, a single HIV case, lifetime cost is estimated in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, Hepatitis cases, again, can easily be well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get someone who ends up with cirrhosis and needs a liver transplant, providing That 10-cent needle and that connection to other services, uh, it it has been proven time and time again to be cost-saving. SSPs also, as I mentioned, play a critical role in reducing infectious disease outbreaks that are often associated with the opioid epidemic, uh, such as HIV and hepatitis. From uh, from 2010 to 2016, there's been a a three-and-a-half-fold increase in reported cases of hepatitis C, coincident with the evolution of the opioid epidemic, and the majority of those new cases have been linked to injection drug use. SSPs are associated with a 50% decline in the risk of HIV and hepatitis C transmission, and when linked to substance use treatment, they prevent even more infections. Nearly one in 10 HIV infections in the United States is linked to injection drug use. That's why syringe service programs are a strategic part of HHS's Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, the nation's 10-year plan to reduce HIV infections in the United States by 75% in five years and by 90% by 2030. One of the uh, more tragic consequences of the opioid epidemic has been the meteoric, meteoric rise in opioid overdoses and deaths. There's currently a person dying of an opioid overdose every 11 minutes in this country. And i got to tell you, there's not a day that I don't think about that statistic. It, it really breaks my heart to have to go and visit my brother while he's incarcerated. The, the one blessing is that he's still alive. And that's not the case for far too many families out there. And it's why I'm underscoring the importance of syringe service programs as distribution points for naloxone. How many of you all know what naloxone is? Good, good. I, I love that you all have heard about it. Naloxone, also known as Narcan or Evzio, is an opioid overdose reversal agent proven to save lives. It can rescue someone from a potentially fatal overdose by restoring a person's ability to breathe, a process, process which may slow and eventually stop when a person overdoses on opioids. In an effort to reduce opioid overdose-related mortality, My office is focused on putting naloxone in the hands of all first responders and as many people in the community as possible. So in April of 2018, I issued the first Surgeon General's advisory in more than 10 years, highlighting the importance of naloxone access and use as a way to curb opioid morbidity and mortality. We know that over 50% of the overdoses that occur in this country aren't occurring on on a street or in a back alley. They're occurring at home or outside of a medical setting. And just as with CPR, we have a very limited time to respond. So there's going to be audience participation today. Raise your hand if you know CPR. Look around. Look around. A majority of hands in this audience are raised. Uh, Raise your hand if you carry naloxone with you everywhere you go. Not nearly as many hands raised, and i got to be honest with you, many more hands raised in this audience than when I typically ask that question. The fact is, Naloxone can be easily injected or sprayed. This is the uh, Evzio, the take-home version of Naloxone. It actually talks to you. And uh, this is the intranasal version. Intranasal version of Naloxone. If you see someone who's non-responsive who you suspect is having an opioid overdose, you simply put it in their nostril and press. That's how easy it is to save a life. Any one of you can save a life if you have naloxone on hand and know how to use it. And that's critically important to understand. Once upon a time, we had people dropping dead of heart attacks all across the country. And we know that the average ambulance can't get to a person who's having a heart attack or a cardiac arrest in time to uh, uh, actually uh, intervene. So we taught all of America about CPR. And you saw how many hands were raised. Again, we now have a person dying of an opioid overdose every 11 minutes in this country. The truth is, it's more likely when you walk out of Cato Institute that someone's going to walk up to you and say, we need you to respond to an opioid overdose, than it is that they're going to say, we need you to respond to someone who's having a cardiac arrest. And you saw the difference in the number of hands in terms of people who were able to respond. Syringe service programs are a proven way to get naloxone in the hands <clears throat> Of those most likely to witness an opioid overdose. In addition to the benefits already mentioned, SSPs can also provide vaccinations, service touch points for testing and treatment of STDs, and can connect people to primary care treatment. Because guess what? People who are injecting drugs, that's not their only problem. They often have high blood pressure, or diabetes, or need assistance with smoking cessation, or have other issues that can be a concern. But In my opinion, the biggest benefit of syringe service programs lies in building trust with those who have substance use disorder. And again, remember, I started by talking about stigma. I intentionally started by talking about stigma because that divide keeps people from getting the services they need. Syringe service programs are a platform for building trust. And I observed these benefits and more during my tenure as state health commissioner of Indiana when I oversaw the response to the nation's largest ever outbreak of HIV related to injection drug use. A small town of Austin, Indiana, um, about 4,000 people had three total HIV cases in the previous decade, uh, and a little over a year and a half had over 200 cases of HIV related to injection drug use. And the truth is, in order to curb an opioid-fueled crisis that was impacting rural Scott County, It was as much, and uh, in my opinion more, about the relationships as it was about the science. People often often ask who was most critical to stopping that unprecedented HIV outbreak? Was it the CDC? Was it the hospital? Was it the local med school? And all those people were critical partners, but I most needed the buy-in of the law enforcement, the business, and the faith-based communities. And while this may seem surprising to some of you, I knew we'd never be successful without ensuring that those trusted community leaders and advocates were invested and part of the solution. We were having a conversation about New York um, versus Scott County earlier. New York's got more syringe service programs than uh, anywhere else in the United States. You ask the average citizen in New York City where the nearest syringe service program is, they couldn't tell you. You go to Scott County, Indiana, they've got one syringe service program, and I can guarantee you every adult, most kids in that county can tell you exactly where the syringe service program is. The dynamics are very different in urban areas versus rural areas and from community to community, and so we need to make sure community leaders and communities feel engaged and invested in part of the solution. The fact is public health professionals and I hold myself to this, myself included. We often lecture others about what they should be doing without actually taking the time to ask people about their priorities and their concerns. But just as the opioid epidemic is occurring at the community level, so too must solutions have local buy-in and be locally led. I am a big, big proponent of the adage that people need to know that you care before they care what you know. And that's why in Indiana, I didn't try to solve the HIV outbreak from standing behind a podium in Indianapolis. I drove two hours to rural Scott County and learned that the local sheriff was worried about needles uh, being found in public areas and his officers getting pricked by hidden syringes by searching subjects. If you're a sheriff, those are legitimate concerns. Those are truly legitimate concerns. So I shared with the sheriff How, um, let's see, here we go. I shared with the sheriff how syringe service programs have actually been proven to decrease needles found in public areas, been proven, and to reduce needle stick injuries to officers by 60%. But again, if I'd said that from behind a podium in Indianapolis, it wouldn't have mattered. Sitting down across from the sheriff and having a sandwich with him and hearing out his concerns and validating them, all of a sudden opened up the door for me to be able to share the science with him. I learned that local faith leaders were worried about enabling drug use. So I explained that SSPs would provide connections to treatment and pathways to recovery. And the fact is, the local faith leaders didn't really care about how many needles we handed out, but they greatly cared about how many people we were able to connect to addiction and recovery treatment services, how many people we were able to help provide a home that evening how many people we were actually able to feed. Those were the metrics that they cared about, and we had to speak in a language that resonated with them. So what were the results? Well, we did not see more drug use as evidenced by the demand for syringes. That is the the, uh, green line that you see here. Average number of syringes needed by clients each day by quarter actually initially went up as we developed trust, then leveled off and then started to come down. So no, syringe service programs do not drive up drug use. But we did see HIV diagnoses go down. If you look at the red line right there, and most importantly, more people entered treatment. And those are the blue boxes that you see on this sheet. So again, built the trust, did not see drug use go up, but saw more people actually get into treatment. By listening to and involving the community, we were able to implement an evidence-based approach to address their concerns and to overcome the outbreak. And it worked. Yes, because of the science. There's a lot of science behind what we did, but also because of the relationships. Which leads me to a further topic that uh, may be discussed later today by some of the other speakers and that uh, is often the elephant in the room, uh, supervised injection facilities, or SIFs. SSPs syringe service programs and supervised injection facilities or sifs are both spoken of as harm reduction but it is very important for us to understand that they are different interventions legally and scientifically some refer to sifs as safe injection facilities but it's important for us all to acknowledge that safer doesn't mean safe people can still leave a facility under the influence and fall or drive away and crash, and I've actually visited uh, a, uh, a supervised injection facility in Ottawa, Canada, and I saw many people drive to that facility, and then inject, and then drive away. Um, they can be harmed or harm others. And so, again, it's important that we don't conflate SSPs with CIFs, and that we certainly don't call SIFs safe injection facilities. Uh, they are supervised injection facilities. Uh, again, I'm not bashing um, any particular person or group. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to talk about syringe service programs. But the truth is, I've looked at the data and I've seen little to no data suggesting that SIS or supervised injection facilities are more effective in preventing overall morbidity and mortality than expanding comprehensive syringe service programs. Some communities that are currently debating SIS don't even have syringe service programs available uh, on most days of the week. So again, uh, important to remember that the two are different and that uh, uh, we want to optimize the things that we know work um, before we start having conversations about more controversial interventions. The other speakers, again, will perhaps give their perspectives on SIS, but uh, I know a common theme you'll hear from all of us and that I've hit on many times already, is that for any harm reduction initiative to be maximally effective, communities must be engaged and supportive. I want to tell you all, I get asked. I was actually asked in an interview the other day, what are you proud of during your tenure? I'm proud of the tremendous progress made in expanding SSPs, syringe service programs, over the last several years. Uh, In 2016, federal law was changed to permit use of federal funds to support syringe service programs largely based on the Indiana HIV outbreak and our response. CDC core prevention funding can now be used for SSPs. The CDC conducted a national vulnerability analysis to identify areas at risk for outbreaks among people who inject drugs. And CDC now funds individual states to conduct local vulnerability assessments. And again, expanding SSPs is a core component of ending the HIV epidemic. So we have made tremendous progress, tremendous progress in expanding SSPs. In neighboring Kentucky, anyone from Kentucky in the audience? A couple people from Kentucky in the audience. Uh, Kentucky, when we had our HIV outbreak in Indiana, had zero legalized syringe service programs. By the spring of 2016, they had 15 syringe service programs, and if you look, those syringe service programs, which are uh, in the, uh, the blue stars, actually weren't at all in the areas that the CDC identified as being at high risk for an HIV outbreak. By spring of 2018, Kentucky expanded to 54 syringe service programs. And again, mostly in the areas where they're vulnerable. I'm extremely proud of the work that we've done to expand SSP. Still a long way to go, but, uh, but, but a lot of work done. So, I say all that to say that, quite frankly, I worry about a community backlash against syringe service programs when they're equated or confused with supervised injection facilities. And I've met with supporters of SSPs who were equally concerned about that debate and communities saying that I equate one with the other and now we're not going to do any form of harm reduction. It's also important to note, this is just a fact, that the DEA and DOJ have stated that supervised injection facilities are illegal. So one intervention is accepted and legal on a federal level. The other intervention is considered illegal. So the bottom line is that for me personally, I'd rather see communities supporting the opening and expansion of comprehensive SSPs and doubling down on proven and more widely accepted and legal interventions like naloxone and medication-assisted treatment. So that's more than I expected to say on these, but I wanted to give you all the context for my position. And I also wanted you to understand that the two are very different, again, legally and based on the, uh, the science and the implications. Now, just as in Scott County, uh, by empowering evidence-based local responses, we're making progress nationally and in the opioid fight. Since my naloxone advisory was released, Almost 3 million two-unit doses have been distributed to communities. This administration has has really leaned into making naloxone more available across the country. Provisional drug overdose deaths have dropped by 5%, the first drop in over 20 years. Since the start of the administration, we've seen the number of Americans receiving treatment grow. 1.27 million people now receiving medication-assisted treatment. And in 2019, HHS awarded over $9 billion dollars, and grants to states, tribes, and local communities to combat opioid addiction. The fact is, we're making a difference, but we've got a long way to go, and we can't get there without maximizing our use of evidence-based approaches like syringe service programs. Connecting people to care is important with any chronic condition, but it's crucial when the individual is battling a substance use disorder. The earlier that connection is made, the better, and syringe service programs are proven touch points that connect people to services and to care. So as I wrap up, I want to leave you with a a few items. First, I ask you to help me fight stigma. I truly believe stigma is our biggest killer. Stigma kills more people than opioid overdoses. Stigma kills more people than cigarettes because it keeps people No matter your disease or your risk factor, from admitting you have a problem, from asking for help, it keeps people from giving you help. There are doctors, there are nurses, there are health professionals out there who question whether or not they should resuscitate someone with naloxone, who judge them. No one says we shouldn't provide you smoking cessation services because you continue to smoke cigarettes. No one says you shouldn't treat my asthma that I have because... I didn't pay attention to the triggers that actually make it become worse. We don't judge anyone else in any other way and then say we're not going to treat you. Choose to use destigmatizing language. For instance, say person who is addicted to drugs versus addict. And that's a a, a term that I hear used often in the media, but uh, addict is a very stigmatizing term. I say person who is addicted to drugs. Say using or not using drugs versus saying clean or dirty. The fact is, a person is not defined by their addiction. Second, go to cdc.gov backslash SSP to learn more about syringe service programs. A lot of the science is there. You're going to hear about it today, but share it with your friends. Share it on your social media channels. Help other people become uh, more uh, educated about syringe service programs. Get involved in your community. Consider volunteering at, or at least visiting, an SSP. I'll tell you. uh, I talked about SSPs a lot before I visited one. Then I visited one and saw it in action. And you really do see people connected to care, connected to services. You see that trust that is built between the people who work there. There's no substitute for seeing it in person. Join me in in raising awareness about naloxone. Please go to surgeongeneral.gov or go to my Twitter site and uh, read my advisory and share it with a friend. Help me make this medication more accessible to people with opioid use disorder and anyone in a position to respond to an overdose. And that includes all of you. You could save a life whether you're at work or at home or in the parking lot or walking down the street. And then finally, my final request, go to surgeongeneral.gov and share my digital postcard on opioid misuse. It provides the public with five tangible actions that everyone, all of you, can take to raise awareness, prevent addiction, and stop overdose deaths. I want every American to receive this postcard. So take out your phone, snap a picture, go to my website, get it in some way, shape, or form, and share it with your social networks and listeners. because it is called a digital postcard because the only way we're going to share it is digitally. Educate your friends family members, and colleagues about the steps we can all take to combat the opioid crisis. And finally, I call on you to lead with what I call bold compassion and continue moving your communities, our communities, from a solely criminal justice-based approach to public health and substance use disorder to a more public health oriented and partnership-based approach. Be proactive in encouraging dialogue. Ask the tough questions. Encourage others to share their stories in an effort to educate and to eradicate stigma. Because the stronger the foundation of trust in our communities, the better equipped we will all be to solve this crisis and to face, or better yet, prevent the next one. So again, thank you to the Cato Institute. Thank you, Dr. Singer. And thank you to all of you for joining me today. And again, uh, let's keep this conversation going. These are my social media platforms, and uh, I hope you all will share me in spreading the benefits of syringe service programs and lowering stigma. Thank you,
2: sir.
0: Uh, this, this, the Surgeon General has to leave. He has another pressing appointment, but we are very grateful that he was able to come today. Uh, and, uh, and I'm going to follow the feed, so. Great.
1: Make sure you tell everyone else to live meeting people
0: outside the room you can watch and hear the rest of the conversation. Thank you so much. Um, we have two more speakers. One of them uh, is going to, he was originally, uh, Arizona State Representative Tony Rivera was supposed to be here physically, but some pressing legislative matter uh, requires him to be. Uh, detained at the state capitol in Phoenix today, but he's going to be with us by remote hookup. So he's still going to be here and be able to take questions. Um, but I want to introduce the next speaker, uh, Dr. Ricky N. Bluthenthal. He's the associate dean for social justice and a professor in the Department of President, uh, Department of Preventive Medicine at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Uh, since 1991, he's conducted research on health promotion among people who inject drugs men who have sex with men and other disadvantaged populations. His key scientific contributions have established the negative impacts of law enforcement on people who inject drugs and syringe exchange programs, the health benefits of more generous syringe dispensing policies, and the inadequacy of syringe exchange programs implementation in California and the utility of providing preventive services to people who inject drugs through syringe exchange programs. Dr. Boothal has published... 140 manuscripts in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including the American Journal of Public Health, Drug and Alcohol Dependence, Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research. I'll go on and on. So I'll, in, uh, in the instance of Brevy, he's also on the editorial board of the International Journal of Drug Policy and Drug and Alcohol Dependence. And he has led studies funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, among others. As a graduate student, Dr. Butenthal co-founded the Syringe Exchange Program in Oakland, California, and was a founding board member of the Harm Reduction Coalition, the largest drug user-focused training and advocacy organization in the United States. He received his BA in History and Sociology from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and his MA and PhD in Sociology from the University of California, Berkeley. give you Dr. Booth and
3: uh, Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here. Um, uh, let me just start with saying I, I'm old enough to remember when people were getting arrested for running needle exchange programs. Uh, and in fact, I was one of them. Um, so, um, and I think the Surgeon General gave a great talk, uh, particularly with his focus on, both on the importance of trans-service programs, and on the role of stigma in coming up with adequate responses to health problems experienced by people who inject drugs. So it's very comforting to see that after 30 years that we have such a progressive stance on these health issues. So the relationship of my talk to his is I'm going to provide a little bit more detail. And then one major difference, which is I think we need to locate uh, a community that he didn't talk about as much, which is the people who inject drugs like we need to really put them at the center of the programming uh, and not be not be satisfied with policy responses that don't put their health outcomes first. So that'll be the thing that I add, and I think that that's really important. So the other things matter, getting community buy-in from these larger constituencies certainly make things politically possible and a little bit more sustainable, but we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we continue to endure the multiple infectious disease epidemics that the Surgeon General pointed out, hepatitis C, HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, infective endocarditis, skin and soft tissue infections that are actually killing people every day, um, waiting for the rest of us to get over our stigmas related to drug use. So that's sort of the highlight. And then I'll provide some details now about uh, uh, the specifics. So uh, the program I helped start in Oakland back in 1992 was focused on harm reduction, and there are really four simple ideas to that. Uh, the first is it's client-driven, that it's practical strategies, interventions that were non-judgmental and non-punitive. Now in my career, I've interviewed or had interviewed literally tens of thousands of people who inject drugs. And none of those people needed me to tell them that their, things had gone awry in their lives. None of them needed my opinion about their, their drug use. What they did need was access to resources that would allow them to improve their circumstances. And that's really at the heart of harm reduction. And so when you think about this graphic, just picture a person. It could be your cousin, your mother, your father, your child there. And the focus is trying to give them the things that they need to be healthiest uh, in circumstances that, you know, have maybe gotten out of control or were not of their making. But we have to put the humanity and the human dignity of people who inject drugs at the center of our activities, right? Their lives matter as much as as mine do. Their pain is as as important as my pain. Uh, And having that focus is the key to then developing programs that are going to have a sustained impact on their health. So these are examples of uh, things that you could do with different goals, right? Allowing the, the, the person to set their goals. So if they wanted to have controlled injection drug use, here are some things that you can do. So there are heroin or opioid pres- uh, prescription programs and trials that have been uh, conducted. They actually scientifically are fantastic. And in fact, they look a little bit like a drug consumption room. So if you think about the Swiss heroin experiment that that's been, continues to go on and started in the 90s, basically people come into a clinical setting, they're given pharmaceutically produced heroin, they're allowed to inject it in that setting, and then when they're done and uh, fully uh, recovered from the, uh, the, impact, the incapacitation that comes with heroin use, they go on about their business. Now that heroin prescription trial has resulted in improvements in uh, employment, improvements in educational attainment, reduction in health outcomes. And you know the other thing that it did? It reduced injection drug use in Switzerland. Right, because people were not out in community settings using drugs or engaged in uh, income generation strategies that brought other people into their networks. So in some ways, the drug consumption rooms or the safe injector, safer injection facilities can have those same, same benefits. So I just I don't want to get into a back and forth, certainly with the Surgeon General, about this. And he's certainly right about the legal issues. But let me just point out, you know, the federal government made it illegal to study needle exchanges until 2016. Right? I was arrested for running a needle exchange many times in the 90s. So we, we don't want to let the fact that something is illegal at the moment be our, uh, our moral, um, the last word on whether we should proceed with something. And so I think there are lots of benefits to come from uh, drug consumption rooms or safe rejected facilities, whatever you want to call them. Um, are they the only solution? Of course not. And certainly in places where that's not possible, I think I agree wholeheartedly with the Surgeon General that uh, syringe service programs should be implemented. So let me just on this slide conclude by just saying there are a whole range of other things that we can do, medication treatment, withdrawal management, right? So using a a medication like buprenorphine or Suboxone, making that more widely available so that people who maybe aren't ready to stop uh, using uh, heroin or other opiates, but can help them deal with the negative consequences of the physical dependence and withdrawal that come, that come out of that. Um, uh, and then there are other things we can do. So I think we, there's a lot of imagination that we need to mobilize and use in thinking about the health problems for this population. And that's particularly important given the fact that we, as the epidemiological data indicates, we do have a growing uh, population of people who inject drugs. That's 100% happening in the United States, and we need to act like we know that and respond appropriately. All right, so harm reduction can happen on a continuum. And in this slide, I'm just sort of laying out some work that I've done with others where you sort of look at the different syringe dispensing policies. Often these policy choices are are really political choices. They're not focused on what works best. Generally speaking, being more harm reduction is better than being less harm reduction. So if you have a syringe service program and you give out need-based distribution, Right, which is giving people the number of syringes they need for the number of injections they think they're going to have in the next period of time. That's better for their health outcomes. That's better for the spread of, uh, of infectious diseases than having these more restricted uh, approaches. Similarly, things like secondary exchanges is when someone goes to a program, gets syringes, and gives it to their uh, injection drug-using partners. That's great benefits, right? You're extending the impact of the program. And then as the Surgeon General pointed out, it's important to provide as many services in these settings as possible. Part of the genius of syringe exchange programs is you're giving people something they need, and so they will come to you for it. And when they're there, there's a great opportunity to make uh, other services available that will help improve their health. And we should be doing that to the extent possible and allowed by funding. Um, Okay, so let me just talk a little bit about the evidence. So, you know, I made this point about more harm reduction is better. And so this next slide is just an indication of that. Uh, and part of the theme of this, so there's two themes. So one is we can be more generous and not have uh, negative uh, consequences. So if you look at this, this slide, I want to turn around and look at it, but I'm not going to. I'll just explain it to you. So the bottom line is basically we collected data from 25. We, Dr. Kroll, my uh, longtime colleague, uh, collected data from uh, about 1,600 people who inject drugs in California from 25 different syringe exchange programs in the state of California. All right? About 70 people from each program. And then we looked at, we created this, uh, this thing called syringe coverage, right? Which is the relationship, the ratio of the number of syringes they had received from the needle Exchange Program to the number of injections they think they would have in the next 30 days. And so when you look at this slide, the 10%, for the people at 10%, that means that for every injection, or for every 10 injections, they have one syringe. And then the folks on the right... The 562, they have five and a half syringes for every injection, right? And then you see a great uh, uh, inverse relationship. So you see as the number of syringes go up, the syringe sharing, which is the blue line, goes down, or the, sorry, the red line, goes down uh, dramatically. Similarly, distributed syringe sharing goes down. That's when I use a syringe and give it to someone else to use. And then if you look at the green line, which is unsafe syringe disposal, basically that's a null. So it doesn't result in more improper syringe disposal, which is a common concern related to needle exchange programs. And let me just point out, in most communities, the only people picking up used syringes are syringe exchange programs, right, or needle exchange programs or syringe service programs. So closing them down because you have a syringe disposal problem is is, is an odd choice, right? You're guaranteeing yourself a bigger problem. But the key here is more is better. The other thing is there, so this, and I'll take you through some of the details here, but very quickly, there's been a set of co- cohort studies, some of which my colleagues and I have, de- have done, and, and others by uh, investigators in other places like Seattle and, and Baltimore. All of these cohort studies were follow groups of people over time, and look at changes in their syringe-sharing behaviors, indicate dramatic decreases in syringe-sharing when there's needle exchange programs. Um, the, uh, that then in turn leads to dramatic reductions in HIV incidence. right? So Don Desjolais conducted a study that was published uh, in 1996. Let me say that again. In 1996, right, that established that people who used the needle exchange program had dramatically lower HIV incidence than people who didn't. Uh, And then there's been other methods, like McDonald's from Australia, who looked at uh, global cities, so 99 different cities. You see a decline in HIV uh, uh, prevalence over time in places that have needle exchange programs and increases in places that don't. Um, Then uh, I like to tell this story to my students. When I first started doing research on syringe exchange programs, I was very interested in determining that they worked, in terms of preventing HIV, risk behaviors, and so on. And the truth is I probably should have spent all of that energy just making sure they don't do anything bad because that was the political thing that we ran into. So there have been a series of studies conducted in the 90s and 2000s to establish that people who use needle exchange programs in general tend to use drugs less over time. Certainly they don't increase their drug use. Uh, There's no change, and the Surgeon General made this point, and their uh, interest in drug treatment. In fact, these programs can facilitate people's interest into drug treatment. And then there's no increase in youth drug use uh, as a consequence of having these programs located near them. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about the, the, the uh, syringe disposal. issue. So again, you have someone taking them in. When you don't have a syringe service program, there's no one taking them in. So, you know, just following the logic of that, they're more likely to be improperly disposed of. There's been a couple of studies, again, done in the early 2000s that established there's no relationship to crime. So we can safely implement these in any community without creating these sort of uh, unintended negative consequences that people are so concerned about. All right. The other thing is, and the the Surgeon General made this point about naloxone distribution. So this is some work done by Liza Wheeler uh, that was reported in MMWR a couple years ago. And this shows the growth of naloxone distribution services. Now, there are 600 dots on this map. About half of those are SHREN service programs. They've been at the lead of making uh, uh, naloxone available to populations of people who inject drugs. And this underscores, again, one of my key take-homes, which is that when we give this group The services and the resources they need, they use them in the intended way, uh, and they save people's lives, right? Uh, Dramatic impact on uh, overdose deaths by having people who actually inject drugs have these uh, medications available to them. Um, And I'm just sure this is some local data from Los Angeles and San Francisco that I think really highlights this, this point. So just look at the three sort of pairs on the left. Those are from Los Angeles. Uh, track looking at 2013 to 2017. And we've seen a dramatic increase in overdoses. Part of this is probably because of the introduction of fentanyl into our drug market. Uh, You can see the reports from our uh, participants that the number of witness overdoses they've seen have grown in turn, right? And then the key thing is, beginning in 2011, 2012, Los Angeles City and County began funding naloxone distribution. Those uh, uh, naloxone vials were given out to people who inject drugs, and you see this enormous increase in response. So uh, only, almost 70% of the participants in my study report actually reversing an overdose in the last six months. That's a, a dramatic impact. You know, Thousands of people probably saved. Uh, as a consequence of this intervention. And that's by putting power and resources in the hands of people who inject drugs, right? They are every bit as capable of improving their life circumstances as anyone else in this room. Uh, What we've had, though, is 40 years of trying to disempower them, remove resources from them, isolate them, and then you end up with these negative health consequences as a result. All right, so the scientific consensus on syringe exchange programs is that they don't cause harm, uh, the people who use them report reductions in syringe sharing. We see changes in the HIV epidemic that suggest lower HIV incidence, lower HCV HIV prevalence, uh, and then they're an effective means to get other services to this population. They're also really cheap to operate. Um, so some of this data we don't have. I don't have great recent data. The most recent data is from 2013. Um, but it's important to point out, so this is the average budget. It's about $150,000. That's really very little money uh, when you think about the benefits that you get, you get from this. Uh, that It's probably too little. It should be much more than that. But uh, cost should not be a barrier to implementing these programs. All right. So there's lots of challenges. Um, so, you know, we still, we've had growth in the number of states that now legally permit uh, syringe service programs. But... If you look at this, most states don't have great coverage, right? So places like New York are doing a great job. New Mexico's doing a great job. Hawaii has done a great job. I mean, I feel like in California we're getting there. But California's an enormous state. And we have 50-some-odd syringe exchange programs for, uh, I think it's 29 or 30 million people. Um, so that's probably inadequate for, for the needs. And that's the case, you know, in many other states. Places like Florida only have a few. Although it looks like, uh, thanks to Hensel Tooks, a physician at the University of Miami, they they may have a a statewide program uh, soon. But there's a lot of work to do. So we've known for 20 years that these programs work. The implementation gap is enormous. Uh, And in the context of these multiple infectious disease epidemics, it's uh, really important to get this out. The other thing is that many of the programs that operate uh, are small. Uh, And so we do want to think about scale with these programs. So this data data is a little data. It it isn't all that different now. So there's probably about 20 large programs. So those that give out over 500,000 syringes or more. Um, We need that 20 to be 200, right, if we want to really deal with the, the infectious diseases that can be spread through sharing injection equipment. All right. Then the other piece uh, relates to political mobilization. Uh, there's been some great work done by Robert Tempalski and others looking at you know, what are the places that act? Who are the places that are willing to make the political decisions to implement these programs? Historically, this is changing, mostly because of the uh, opiate crisis. Uh, but looking at this earlier data, you know, the best predictor was, is there, was there an act, up, uh, uh, an ACT UP group in the, in the city? So you know, part of the theme is is that we have to lean into and embrace populations of people who inject drugs, not think of them as outside of ourselves. Because if we allow our, our politics to pick it, we're going to end up with many more uh, uh, health problems as we move forward. And similarly, so this work that she did just points out that stigma, as the Surgeon General, General so uh, so well pointed out, really is an active a barrier to the health of people to, who inject drugs. It impacts them individually, it impacts them in the community, impacts resources available to the programs they need to stay healthy. So we really do need to work on that. And I mean, I think the easiest way to do that is just simply to recall that most of us know someone who has a substance use disorder. Most of us do. Uh, and it's not a problem that knows a particular race better than another, a particular class better than another, a particular gender better than another. So we all have a stake in the game uh, and we need to sort of begin, we need to begin acting like we know that. Now the other thing that's happened is, uh, and people have talked a lot about economic inequality in the United States growing, and it has. And that's created real problems for these populations. So when I began collecting data among people who inject drugs in Los Angeles in 2001, um, about 30% of the, uh, my participants in my study were homeless. So in 2001, 30% were homeless. The homeless rate now is about 80%, moving towards 90%. We're in the field with a new study, and it's grown. And that's because we've created this architecture uh, politically that makes, uh, makes it very hard to be a person who injects drugs, that denies them educational services, work opportunities, housing opportunities. And so that population has been increasingly immiserated. That then becomes its own material impediment to health improvement. Right? And you see that in these outbreaks. Part of what was going on in Scouts County was, you know they had withdrawn the HIV testing services. They obviously didn't have things like syringe service programs happening, but they also had intense poverty, right? That was not addressed. People were homeless. That's happened in Seattle, that's happening in the suburbs of Boston. Um, uh, and it, it's going to be a problem that props up throughout the country, and it's sort of it's its own independent predictor of these outbreaks. Um, The other thing is the law enforcement and policing practices around these programs can be problematic, right? If police are there, then people who inject drugs are not going to be there. Uh, And we've known that since 1991 when there was a publication about the needle exchange trial in New York City when they put the needle exchange program next to the police station, right? No one used it. So uh, we need to be smart about that and, you know, change our approach in terms of thinking about policing's role. Um, the Surgeon General pointing out this, these vulnerability studies that have come out. Um, you know, this is a whole new game. So this is Tennessee. You can see a mix of uh, rural and uh, urban uh, counties that now have uh, uh, are at risk for an HIV or hepatitis C outbreak. So lots of places that haven't uh, contemplated having stringent service programs need to have them. Uh, it was great to see the progress that Kentucky's made. Uh, There are a bunch of other states uh, that need to make the similar progress in terms of making these services available to people who inject drugs. Uh, The Surgeon General also pointed this out, this increase in fentanyl overdose deaths. That's the, I guess it's kind of yellow if I'm not colorblind. Um, Fentanyl is now going to become the sort of national drug of choice in terms of opiates. Uh, It it makes sense from a drug trafficking standpoint. right? It's more highly potent, it's easier to to smuggle. uh, but there has a whole set of uh, negative consequences that we're just beginning to document. So one is obviously overdose deaths. Uh, the other, we just had this paper come out in December where we document that you have, with people using fentanyl, increased um, uh, non-fatal overdoses, increased syringe sharing. So one of the attributes of fentanyl is it's both more potent and shorter acting. So People who might have gotten by with injecting two or three times a year, a day, I'm sorry, will now have to inject three and six times a day. And so that increases and puts a pressure on the syringe service programs, increases the likelihood that they might share syringes. That will then lead to both increases in all the injection related health outcomes infective endocarditis, skin and soft tissue uh, infections, hepatitis C, and HIV. All right, We're in the midst of a little, uh, we don't talk about this enough, acute uh, uh, hepatitis C uh, epidemic in the United States, again, driven by injection drug use. Um, this is uh, data nationally on the change in infective endocarditis uh, uh, in the United States. All these things are growing. They grow regardless of region. So, I don't know if you can see this, but basically, all of these regions report some increase, 2, 3, 4% in reports of these cases, uh, uh, regardless of, of the part of the country. All right, so I'm almost done. Um, so, we need needle 6 programs more than ever. Um, uh, they've been proven to work for HIV prevention purposes, they've played an, uh, an oversized role in opiate uh, overdose reversals. They can be effective at helping with wound care, screening for infectious diseases, vaccinations for hepatitis A and hepatitis B, and also initiation of treatment. Um, We also can use them to deliver other biomedical interventions that have been uh, effective, like pre and post uh, uh, prophylaxis for HIV, and then, of course, hepatitis C treatment, which we could potentially eliminate if we were able to make it available to the population of active people who inject drugs. So my conclusions. Part of the reason why these programs work, probably the main thing, is that they engage the population. We have to put people who inject the drugs at the center of our thinking, right? We have to put their well-being at the center of our thinking. And then we have to engage them actively in the process of figuring out what are ways that are going to be effective for them. And accept the fact, you know, I'm a parent. I'm used to the fact that, yeah, hey, I love my kids. My kids love me. They don't do everything I like, right? And I don't do everything they like. You know, that's part of the human family. People who inject drugs are no different. We need to engage with them, put them at the center, give them the resources. We documented that when we do, they have outsized impacts and improvements. Um, And so we should just sort of stop resisting that, right? These are not out-of-control people who've lost human agency. They really aren't. Um, uh, They're perfectly capable and willing, have been demonstrated to act on their behalf. So we need to do that. Needle exchange programs are inexpensive. Sorry, I almost done. We also need to think about combination programs. I think the surgeon general referred to this. We can think about a whole set of things like, uh, you know, the INSIGHT program in Vancouver, for instance. You can think about that as a syringe exchange program as well as a a safe injection site, right? So we can do these things together. There's great evidence when we combine them, these sort of larger structural interventions, increasing availability to opiate substitution therapies, Doing more syringe exchange, having drug consumption sites, that you get you know, uh, uh, exponentially greater outcomes in terms of health improvements. And then last, lastly, we have to deal with the politics, right? You know, uh, I've spent most of my adult life uh, having these conversations with people. Um, we have to, have to find a space where we acknowledge and hold up the human dignity of people who use drugs, right? that we acknowledge that their welfare actually does matter, that it isn't okay if they die from overdoses or from hepatitis C or from HIV. We have to act like they're us. And so we need to change our politics in our discussion around these kinds of topics. Uh, a lot of times people will bring up in the Surgeon General Miss this, oh, police officers are worried about needle, needle sticks. Well, we did a study on that in 2010 in California. There were seven needle sticks in the entire state of California among police officers. Seven. That's no excuse to then not do syringe exchange programs. right? When you have hundreds of people each year at that time getting HIV from injection drug use in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Breakersfield, et cetera, et cetera. Like there has to be some decisional balance here where we say, yeah, I don't like that. I don't want police officers to get needle stuck either. But that doesn't mean I can't provide humane services to other humans who deserve it. right? Um, and so we have to get past this implementation gap. That's going to require maybe a different kind of politics where we think about our community not only as the homeowners or the business owners or the faith leaders, but actually everyone who lives in it and that we look at, uh, at everyone's uh, vested interests in improving all our health. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Um, our next speaker was supposed to be Arizona Representative Tony Rivera, but I'm told that we've been unable to... Uh, establish contact with him um, <clears throat> so um, uh, let me just say that the reason he was going to speak here is Arizona where I reside uh, that's my home that's my residence uh, is one of the 20 states that ha- legally does not permit uh, syringe services programs um, there are several operating in the state for many years Two uh, I know particularly in, in Maricopa County where Phoenix is um, totally privately funded And um, um, But they have to sort of operate in a clandestine manner when they come by, like in a van to areas where they know there are a large population of people who inject drugs. They're generally supported by the local police who tend to um, kind of look the other way. They would like to be able to get more organized and be able to offer services, as we've talked about. Uh, Representative Rivero is a conservative Republican from the northwestern suburbs of Phoenix, and for the last two years, he's unsuccessfully uh, attempted to get the paraphernalia laws in Arizona repealed, so that these uh, programs can operate in the open and be more uh, obviously more productive. Um, and it's generally been received bipartisan support, but there have been a couple of of. Uh, people who oppose it, and particularly not in my backyard kind of uh, situations that have led to legislative maneuvering that that has killed his efforts two consecutive years. And I'm told that he intends to try once again in the just begun uh, s- latest session of the Arizona legislature. Um, so uh, I don't know what he was going to say, but I wanted him to share with us his... Uh, his experiences and his thoughts and insights about dealing with uh, both political and community obstacles. Um, but that's why he was supposed to be here. But that'll actually give me a little more time to comment. So first of all, what I wanted to uh, to comment with, with uh, Dr. Bluthethal, again, it's, I don't want to belabor the point, but, but, but dealing with uh, safe injection or safe consumption sites, um, just recently, on the on the, the news, there have been a lot of uh, reports, very critical, for example, of the situation in homeless situation in San Francisco and other inner cities. And they're showing this kind of B roll of needles and syringes on the streets, and and a lot of people, understandably, are concerned. They don't want to see needles and syringes on the streets, and they don't want their children on the way to school to see people using. And to me, uh, in addition to the fact that what, for 20-plus years, 30 years now, in much of the developed world, including Canada, uh, safe consumption sites have been working very well. Um, it just kind of, to me, it seems like uh, a no-brainer to to think that, well, you know, if these people can come in, then they won't be using in sight of your kids on the way to school and the needles and syringes won't be on the street because the people in the site will dispose of the needles more safely, but I'd like you to comment
3: on that. No, I think you're right. I mean, from a public health perspective, they're they're pretty perfect, (laughs) right? I mean, you have people in a facility where they're observed, so they're not sharing syringes. They're injecting in a place that's clean, much cleaner than it would be if they were injecting outside. They're using sterile equipment. All of their equipment is sterile. Um, Most of these facilities have a cool-down room that people sit in, so they're able to deal with the impairment period. Uh, and then go about their business. So you're probably having impacts on say, uh, skin, t- soft, uh, sorry, skin and soft tissue infections. Obviously, HIV, hepatitis C, and then you don't have people using drugs in public settings. But I, you know, I think the other thing that, about that we need to talk, need to really grapple with and, and take stock of, is that we have immiserated this population, right? So people have been driven to homelessness right, by our policies that that push people out. So will drug consumption sites mean that there are never going to be someone injecting outside? No. But what they will do is they will will reduce the number of people who do that, depending on how they're deployed. But we do have to go beyond that. We have to grapple with the idea that human dignity requires that people be housed, that they have access to healthy foods, that they be safe. And you can't do that if you're homeless. Uh, And, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, we're the homeless capital of the United States. You know, we need to really think uh, imaginatively about the ways that we're going to change the markets around housing, uh, the way we build housing so that we can make sure that everyone's housed. So I think drug consumption sites are part of the solution, for sure. Um, But we have these other things that are also, uh, that we're going to have to address related to the social determinants of health as well.
0: Okay before we take i'm going to take questions from the audience in a minute I have one more question i'd like to ask you this is moderator's privilege um, i not as the Surgeon general said and and you've said not all uh ssps ssps are alike in mm-hmm. some states they're much more restrictive you have to have for example uh a declaration of a public health emergency in order for one to even be uh activated in other states they're they're much more uh is much more freedom given to SSPs without a lot of these restrictions. Could you uh, speak to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, generally speaking, uh, the more generous policies are better. The more services are better. Uh, you get better outcomes. Uh, a lot of the times we want to control this population and the services that, uh, that we make available to them. I mean, we see that with methadone, right? There's a joke in the sort of drug use epidemiology world that methadone is the most tightly regulated substance in the world right, at least in the United States. Um, And you know, I think a lot of us both, because of the overdose crisis, because of now the emerging role of fentanyl, I think we're all beginning to understand that the truth is anytime someone's using methadone, anytime someone's using buprenorphine, they're not using an illicitly manufactured substance that has God God knows what's in it. Every time someone's in a, a drug consumption site, they're not using outside. Like, we, we, you know, we, we need to sort of both build up the infrastructure to provide support for this population, and then deregulate some of the, the, health, the helping side uh, that could end up resulting in improvements, particularly because of the fentanyl crisis, right? The, 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 the you know, you, I showed you from our data in Los Angeles, the same thing happened in San Francisco. You know, 7% reported nonfatal overdoses in 2011, 2013. It basically tripled. In both in both cities right so that's beginning to happen everywhere there will be more deaths as a consequence of that um, so we need to deregulate the helping medications and then we need to implement fully these sort of other uh, these other services
0: okay, thank you I'm gonna open it up to questions now um, so uh, let me just a couple of little housekeeping things please wait to be called on wait for the microphones so that everybody in the room can hear. And, and also in the audience uh, watching online, could hear. And uh, please announce your name and affiliation. So, uh, uh, right in the center. Yes, man with the white shirt.
4: Uh, Thank you. My name is Zach Ford. I am from Age United. I manage the Syringe Access Fund, um, which is one of the country's largest private philanthropic initiatives for syringe services programs. Um, Dr. Adams mentioned that in 2016, the federal government started funding syringe services programs. Um, I was hoping that you could speak to the nuances of this. And um, I also just wanted to remind folks that you still can't use federal funding to purchase syringes. So I'm curious if you can talk about how this has shown up in your research.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we, the implementation gap is enormous. Uh, you know, like I said, I mean, there are a couple of states like New York, New Mexico, Hawaii. I mean, California is trying to move towards this. I think the studies that the CDC has sponsored around vulnerability is part of that. Where we just sort of step back, we say, okay, these are, these are you know, it's like citing elementary schools, right? <laughs> you know, we need to identify the population at risk, and then we need to make sure they have the services available to them. Um, and, yeah, f- have, not having federal funds available to purchase syringes has been a big impediment to implementation. And, you know, I mean, it's, it is kind of crazy that we went, you know, they outlawed funding for research on the needle exchange program, I think, in 1988. But, you know, there have been a couple of breaks in that. But the fact that the federal government did that was a real problem. The federal government plays an outsized role in our public health response. Most of the money that we spend on public health actually comes from the federal government. So getting uh, a liberalization of, of those policies uh, is really important. And thank you for the great work that Age United has done with their syringe service programs.
0: Um, right here, and also in the center, just to the left there. Yeah.
5: Howard Wolters with COPS, Citizens Opposing Prohibition. Doctor, i like to thank you for mentioning the Swiss program. Um, considered probably the best in the world. Copy now in eight countries. Norway just came online. Um, regarding the the, the the theme of today in terms of uh, needle exchange, the 20 states that haven't done it are obviously ignoring decades of solid research published, etc. Uh, I'm wondering, is it p- time to move on past these 20 states? They'll eventually figure it out. And move on to uh, teaching the world, having them learn about and implement a program such as the Swiss, uh, so we can go for the larger numbers of people to get them through their addiction and into effective treatment, uh, which the Swiss do it. Maybe part of the problem they do it for fifty bucks a day. And uh, but do you think it's time to just say we need to start teaching the public more about medication assisted treatment, including courses they use diacetylmorphine, a fancy word for heroin?
3: Right, right. Um, you know, I, I, my authentic position on all of these topics is, you know, I see myself and my family members and the people who inject drugs. So what I don't want to do is ever give up on somebody and say, hey, South Dakota, you're just never going to get there, right? So I, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. And I think if we put the well-being, the human dignity of other people at the center of this, then, you know, let's open the door. So if South Dakota doesn't want to do syringe state servers, maybe they'll do mobile methadone, right? Or maybe they'll have more availability of Suboxone. Or maybe they'll set up wound care clinics or cool-down rooms. So, you know, what I want to do is, is give people a whole menu of things that they can do uh, now because people are dying now. Right, and that's been the case. I mean, I've, I've I've spent my most of my adult life on these topics. I'm on my fifth health epidemic, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and you know, we, we don't we can we actually have solutions to these problems. So you know, I think we should take what we can get. Um, and uh, no one thing is ever going to solve all of them. Um, but if we, I feel like if we center the debate around the human dignity and health conditions of the people that have these challenges that's the beginning of how we just come up with the reasonable solutions that work in the different communities. Um, And and honor the fact that, you know, we want these folks to live and then we want them to have their best lives and we can actually help them do that.
0: Um, There's a gentleman in the corner over there, all the way on the left side.
6: Hi, uh, Pat Span, just retired Fed. Two quick things. One, your stat for uh, the crime in the neighborhoods, the the Deneema thing, I noticed it was 20 years old, which probably doesn't help. And the second thing is, I noticed in the um, handout they talked about people that um, were five times more likely to enter drug treatment and three times more likely to stop than those that didn't enter the programs. But that's sort of a meaningless stat is there a percentage that that to me a percentage yeah, of the users right. would be would be more meaningful
3: um okay, so I don't have at the top of my head this where that those the, those specific stats come from but I, I will agree with you right that you could have a situation where it went from two percent inner treatment to four percent inner treatment or three percent inner treatment um and so um, that, that's certainly possible, and that would be a more relevant uh, statistic. In terms of the crime issues, there, there actually have been more recent studies. Uh, they were in Canada, so I just tried to focus on the U.S. studies. Uh, so in Canada, they did a lot of work around the safe consumption site, right, the, the safe injection facility in Vancouver, um, and found that, you know, there really, uh, at minimum, has been no increase in crime. And depending on what kind of crime you're talking about, there, there, there could be reductions in, in certain areas. Let me just other, make this additional point, though. You know, the crime, where does the crime come from? Right? The crime comes from immiseration. Right? It comes from people being placed in desperate circumstances so that there isn't adequate treatment made available, or there aren't alternatives uh, in terms of work. Um, So, you know, I think there are probably better ways of managing crime, uh, uh, particularly around these programs, that have less to do with what the program is doing and more to do with what the rest of us are doing when we come face-to-face with people who have histories of criminality in their background. And, I mean, one of the things I've been really heartened by particularly in the last couple of years is this real examination of criminal justice reform, uh, which I know Cato's been a, a big leader on, you know, looking at getting rid of bail. Uh, looking at the consequences of incarcerating people for minor crimes and how that devastates not just them, it changes their life trajectory, but their families, right? I mean, if you put me, I have a nice lifestyle, I'm married, I have two wonderful kids. You know, you put me in jail for six months, a lot of the great things that are wonderful about my life are going to go away, right? And we do that routinely to people all the time without considering that consequence both for them and their families.
0: Um. There was a gentleman up right up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you got it,
4: Bobby Pestronk, um, unaffiliated. Does do any of the presidential candidates from either party uh, have a piece of a platform that addresses the issues that have been discussed today?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't I'm, know the answer I'm to that question. I, I know many of them have opiate plans of one sort or another, and I. I'm pretty sure some of them, I think, I feel like Andrew Yang uh, involved, so. yeah. endorsed safe injection facilities. Uh, Corey Booker
0: is no longer a candidate that endorsed uh, safe consumption sites. Right. I know that. So
3: there's uh, some movement.
0: Yeah. Um, there was uh, that gentleman right here uh, about row four. Yeah. Yeah. You got it, James.
4: Hi, my name's Aaron Ferguson. Um, I'm actually with the national MAT provider and really appreciate the data on that. Um, You know, I can say, from my own experience, we just get a ton of referrals that are voluntary, Um, people coming up and asking. They're tired of playing Russian roulette out there with whatever happens to be on the street. Um, Could you hold the mic a little
0: closer? Yes.
4: I also really appreciate you pushing back on the using legality as a moral compass for whether or not we should do something. Um, being a person who accessed syringe services in my childhood on the streets of California, I probably wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the people who went out and risked being arrested to provide those services to me. Um, but my question is more related to social organizing. So I work in Texas right now. Um, this is one of the states where this is disallowed. And um, trying to get a group of folks together to push for a change to legislation there, and there's some ideological opposition. Um, we're really fighting an uphill battle there. And I was wondering um, what types of steps you might be able to outline for people who are operating in these states where these things are illegal um, to be able to push for change in the coming legislative session.
3: I mean, my experience, the thing that people like best about them is the referral to substance use treatment. So you know I guess that's what I would advise you to push uh, is um, their efficacy in, in that space, and that's well documented. Again, it might not be a solution, but you know, one of the things. You know, so three decades, right, I've spent doing this stuff. It has never been easy to get people into medication treatment. Never, ever, ever. And we really do need to change that, and uh, certain service programs can do that. And that, you know, I think that's something that, regardless of your political uh, affiliations or perspectives, conservative or liberal, I mean, most people would agree facilitating that process makes sense. So um, in my conversation with legislators, even in California, right, which is a pretty progressive state, what they want to hear is what are the, what are the treatment results. Um, so I think you can safely say that and, and, and accept that. Uh, I mean, I had a conversation two years ago around our legislation in California, and I had a legislator basically said to me, look, when you testify, talk about how these things help get people into drug treatment. And as long as they do that, then I'm happy to support them. So, you know, if they're, you know, then I would use that. And and just know that once you get the program open, you, there's a lot of other stuff you can do, right? And, uh, and you are going to get more people into drug treatment, but you're also going to get people not getting H, hepatitis C or maybe getting their hepatitis C treated. You're going to get people... Reunited with their children, right? You're going to get people jobs. There's a bunch of other stuff that's going to happen because of that relationship. And it was heartening to hear the Surgeon General speak about that, that trust and that relationship. You know, the war on drugs has isolated these populations. We're, fundamentally, we are social, right? Isolating us is about the, most, the worst thing you can do consistently to somebody. And so we need to stop doing that. And so whatever gets you over the political you know, goal line is, is probably worth doing.
0: You, know, you talk about how it's how hard it is to get people into medication assisted treatment so much of that is due to federal obstacles yeah. for example um, to get people into buprenorphine programs you need to get an X waiver yeah. which has been an obstacle even though it's been liberalized somewhat with the most recent legislation only about two percent of doctors have availed themselves of it because for a number of reasons number one it's 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 very cumbersome but Number two, you're afraid that you're going to be also a target of uh, law enforcement because you're doing it.
3: Well, and also the other thing is, we, you know, our health insurance process basically creates a scarcity for health care, right? And so, you know, you have another thing, and we see this in Los Angeles, where, you know, there are a fair number of buprenorphine providers, but many don't actually provide it because you also have to make a decision that you want this new population in your clinic. And if you don't have demand for them, why would you do it? Right, you can fill up your clinic. I mean, that's how scarce healthcare is. You can, fill, you can put your shingle out and fill up your patient panel without having to take more problematic or potentially difficult patients. So why would you? But, but also with,
0: when it comes to methadone, Same uh, thing. Yeah. in the UK, in Canada, Australia, I think, and I think France, correct me if I'm wrong, since the 70s, doctors who are interested in treating people with substance use disorder have been able to prescribe methadone directly to them yeah. Um, I'm a surgeon, I, I can prescribe methadone for pain. It's been available since the 1930s, but I just can't prescribe it for withdrawal management or substance use disorder. You have to go to these DEA regulated clinics, which are, uh, again, scarce, and in addition to that, you have to take it physically in the presence of a clinic, a member of a clinic staff, which, you know, if the nearest clinic is 50 miles away, that's not gonna happen. So uh, there are some things that don't even necessarily require allocation of funds; just removing the, the you know the weights on the ankles of people who are trying to to help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that woman uh, in the front here.
2: Hi, my name is Anna Forbes. I'm with the American Academy of HIV Medicine. At um, the uh, outbreak that occurred in Scott County, Indiana. Uh, we know now that one of the issues that may have been rel- related to that was closure of the nearest uh, Planned Parenthood clinic uh, because people had been going there uh, for various services, including getting HIV testing um, and other medical care. Do you foresee that uh, now that the um, interpretation of titles, Title X has been changed uh, in such a way that Planned Parenthood is no longer getting funded, Um, by uh, the government and is therefore having to close clinics all over the place. Do you see that as being something that is likely uh, to result in increased outbreaks of HIV and other um, drug-related?
3: Yeah, among other things, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, making healthcare, making screening services more difficult to get is gonna set you up for having outbreaks, 100% of the time. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a bad, yeah, it's a bad idea, yeah.
0: Um, let's take the front row right center here.
6: My name is Bruce Blumenthal. I'm a family physician in the Baltimore metropolitan area and also sit on the local medical society uh, opioid uh, task force. Um, you kind of just alluded in the previous question to what I was um, interested in and that has to do with availability of medically assisted treatment and the obstacles that are in the way. Uh, I, I fully accept the notion that needle exchange programs are a great means of getting people in and potentially having an audience that can respond and want this type of treatment. but. Can this actually be done in the absence of expanding the availability and getting rid of the obstacles that Dr. Singer talked about in terms of physicians prescribing buprenorphine and other available uh, and very effective agents for these patients?
3: Um, I'm not sure there's a question there. Well, the, the, the
6: question <laughs> is, is, sorry. sorry. Uh, the, the question is, um, is pushing one thing, for example, the needle exchange programs or safe injection sites, in the absence of pushing the availability of medically assisted treatment, gonna get us anywhere? I mean, okay. doesn't it have to be a dual pronged
3: approach in many ways? Right, right. No, I think, you know, in my life, the, the same people pushing more syringe service programs are pushing more buprenorphine. So I, I, I actually don't, I mean, I know this comes up a lot in political debates. People like to do like, well, you can't, you know, we're focused on that, so we're not focused on that. It's like, look, we're adults, right? We can multitask. Uh, you know, they're all of a piece, you know? And, 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 and at the end of the day, even if we had my fantasy of buprenorphine availability, right? Because, you know, in my mind, all right, so you got fentanyl, you got infective endocarditis, hepatitis C, you know, we know where the folks are let's just really make it available to them. Like, you know, you want to come, you're, you're feeling a little unwell, take the pill. Or take it, you don't take it now, take it later, right? I mean, because they know how to use it. And then, you know, my hope would be that as people get familiar with the drug uh, uh, or the medication, and they'll figure out the best way to use it, right? Uh, And for some of those, that will mean, hey, I use it all the time, and I'm not going to be using heroin and fentanyl. So we need to enable that to happen. And I think part of the problem is we've created a system where it's hard for that to happen because it's hard for people to get syringe exchange programs going. I mean, in California, they they closed the program down in Orange County, right? Um, You know, and the the same thing around the treatment issues is like, yeah, not everyone's going to stop. For sure, that's not gonna happen, and that's okay. But a lot of people are gonna change how they use, and there's gonna be a continuum of responses, and I wanna enable all of those best responses. Because every time they're using buprenorphine, they're not using heroin or fentanyl. And that's a win.
0: Let's uh, take just two more. There's a gentleman way uh, in the back there, raising his hand right now, yeah, in the middle. And then one more after this, and it looks like we're running out of time.
7: Thank you for this opportunity. I'm Hugo Delgado, Executive Director for Nova Salud of Northern Virginia. So as a nonprofit profit organization, we provide HIV and hepatitis C in Northern Virginia. So I think I agree with the suggestion and recommendation of Dr. Adams about to fight the stigma. But the fight to fight the stigma should be first for the healthcare provider because we're not, you know, all this local health director did not support it. I tried to implement it two years ago, this uh, program in Northern Virginia, my organization. I mean it probably maybe 20 times with a local health director, law enforcement, uh, director of behavioral health. They say, I support you, but uh, that give you the green line. So that is, that is, that is for me, uh, this is uh, a shame because I, uh, they know that they have task force you know i so I checked the task force I read it multiple times, but even they don't involve in the you know the consumers so so no I can see it's not effective uh, they don't respond in the opio, even the Virginia uh, commissioner declared you know this is uh, opio epidemics, but nobody put the, the hands in the fire, so that is for me, I think the stigma should be. It started from the, from the top. I think that's my recommendation.
0: Thank you. Okay, thank you. One more question. Uh, right down here in the front. Wait, wait, wait. She's going to bring the mic to you.
8: Hey. My name is uh, Charlie Sullivan, and I'm with the prison reform organization called CURE. But we participate in a monthly get-together here in D.C., on rethinking uh, criminal justice in DC, and I did bring up uh, the self-injection sites at our last meeting, which was last Friday, and very few people knew about it. and And I, I, I thought that there should be an effort in so many things, to go to D.C. as a model program because members of Congress are here. You can really get the word out. A- am I wrong on this? Maybe there is. We just don't know about it. Uh, we have a very liberal city council and with prison reform Every member of the city council, including uh, other officials like the attorney general in D.C. and the mayor, support giving voting rights to people in prison. So it's a very liberal community, uh, a very liberal city council. Seems like it's very rightful. All these solutions, which are just awesome, I think the whole presentation was awesome. Uh, so, uh, question: w- What's keeping D.C. from not incorporating these wonderful solutions?
3: Well, I mean, I think my I used to live in DC back in the '80s, and I love DC. It's a fantastic city. Um, You know, the 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 Congress, right? I mean, they have to approve local laws, and they are often no, no. no. If if it's got to be both houses, the Democrats control the
8: House. They can stop anything right now from being vetoed. That's
3: when the... Oh, really? Okay, then they should do it. I don't know why they're not doing it. (laughs) For example, the voting
8: would probably be vetoed by the Republicans if they control both houses. They don't. Oh, okay. So that's going to pass. All right, good. Yeah, so I don't know what's keeping it, though. And I noticed there's very few needle exchange programs in the chart that you had. I think it was light blue or whatever Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm, DC. mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Thank you. I think we're done. Am I correct? So thank you everybody. Um, There'll be a reception.